Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. I do have the passage for you on the insert with an outline. This is the last of the parable sermon series for this summer. We'll start, Lord willing, on the 14th, two weeks from now, Isaiah. Back to Isaiah, the middle of Isaiah we left off, and there we will begin again, which kind of marks almost the end of summer, as it were, when we start that. And so today we come to a parable that many people know. I know for me, I knew it for many years before it really sunk into the depths of my being, what it meant. Uh, There's a concept here that's hard, hard for us people uh, that want to think the best of ourselves and our fellow mankind. It's hard to see what's deep lying here. And I think you will with me today by God's spirit's assistance, see this laid out in the story that Jesus tells. It's a parable that appears only in the Gospel of Luke. There are several that appear in multiple Gospels, but this appears uniquely in the Gospel of Luke. You remember the first part of chapter 18 was about the persistent widow in her prayer. And we have two more individuals represented here in this parable that are praying, but there's a different lesson for us. Here as I read God's holy word, starting at verse 9 of Luke 18, I'll read to verse 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, a powerful picture is painted by our Lord's parable. Please challenge us with any sense of self-righteousness that we may hold on to, any at all. Convict us about our tendency to compare ourselves with others rather than concern ourselves with your righteous standard. Most of all, through exposure to your inspired word and by the ministry of your spirit, give us a humble posture that makes, makes us love and trust Christ all the more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm thankful that in this parable, Jesus once again gives us the meaning of it right at the beginning. He doesn't do this often, but in chapter 18, the two parables, both the first verse When he starts the story, he tells us what it means. And this is a concept for every believer to ask God to help him or her understand. And that's certainly the intent in our studying this. It's so base level and important for us in appreciating the gospel and understanding who we are in Christ, how we're related to God. It's that important. Verse 9 says, look there with me. He also told this parable 
to some who trusted in themselves. Now, I want to pause there because I know the extreme picture painted by the parable certainly real. We see this. But for Christians who are religious, if you will, that is, we have disciplines and practices. We're at church on Sunday. I mean, we make it part of our lives. Uh, we have certain things we do or don't do. Why is that the case is a good question to ask. But here's the question. Do we trust in those things so that God might love us more or favor us just a little more? Now think of that as we go forward, but look again, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. One uh, man who does a paraphrase of this verse says, He told his next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. It's a good paraphrase. Really, Jesus addresses two problems here. Generally, problems that plague religious people, although we'll see that people in general can have some of this. First, there's an overestimation of of one's righteousness, what that even means. Uh, a belief in one's righteousness. Secondly, connected to that, there is a disdain or a necessary putting down of other people's righteousness or apparent righteousness. They go together. If we inflate our own view of ourselves, part of that is accomplished by deflating others. And so by looking at others, we are able to lift our own view of self. Now, I know everything that I say to a relatively mature Christian it can be easy for us to say it doesn't really apply to us. I don't do that. I'm not, I, I understand I'm a sinner. I know that I'm not righteous. And we fail to see really the depths that this story will take us. And we necessarily have to go there to fully appreciate the gospel itself. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I think this also addresses a larger cultural lie that people believe. Yes, the focus is on believers, people who are religious, and so forth. But I think there's a general cultural belief that people are generally good. When it all comes down, people will pick the right thing and solve their problems, get along, and people are good. You hear it repeated over and over again. There is nothing that gives evidence to that being true. But people talk like it all the time. He's a good person, or we're a good nation, or we're good people, and good, 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 good. And it's... Vacant insofar as evidence for that. But people will repeat it over and over again. And people generally think that humanity is good. And if humanity agrees on something, it must be good. And if you don't agree with what good humanity thinks, then you're not good. It all comes from a misconception about what is good and how good we really are. So I think there is something tied in culturally that it's a big lie that that man is generally good. And so if you come from that perspective and then you add a little religion on top of it, now you've got a terrible, terrible recipe for disaster, self-righteous disaster. And that's what is displayed in this story. But all of us have to be aware of how we can have this self-righteous tendency as well in our own lives to the point of obscuring the very thing that makes us rejoice, the gospel itself. We'll see it. It's an extreme contrast story but don't miss the middle area that we can fall into. Contrary to popular opinion, what the story tells, our acceptance by God is based on only one thing, 
And it's not our righteousness. It's not any of our righteousness. It's on one thing. It's based on his grace. And when I say one thing, I want to qualify then. It's based on his grace alone. Let's see how this is so. The Pharisee, I think he exemplifies popular opinion, certainly among the religious. Two men went up into the temple to pray, verse 10. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now recognize something important here, the temple, up into the temple. It doesn't mean they went into the Holy of Holies where only the priests went. But there's an outer courtyard where people could go into. There was a courtyard outside of that that Gentiles could even go into. But up into the temple generally means for the common person, even a Pharisee, they would go into the outer court right outside where the Holy of Holies was and where all the ceremonies and rites and sacrifices were, were done. And there were areas where you could go and pray, even rooms that people could go off and pray in. People would often go in groups and pray. They would lay down, you know, prostrate on the ground and this, and they would, and they would pray. They would kneel. They, whatever manner you can imagine. And they would pray. And this is open for this. So they were going up to the temple. The temple was like a confession of Israel's faith that God was with them. That's why God gave the temple. And the temple had sacrifices done it on a regular basis. And the annual one, the Passover sacrifice with the lamb slaughtered to exemplify their need of a savior, a Messiah. So despite the error that had crept into the thinking of the religious leaders, the temple and what it did described the gospel. God with us, and we can only be right with God through the sacrifice that he will provide. So they went to the temple to pray, these two different men, the Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee says and does the following, verse 11. Standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now pause for a moment. What's a Pharisee? This congregation and most Christians today are predisposed to thinking they're bad guys because of how legalistic they were. And we know that because we get the full picture and how Jesus constantly confronted the Pharisees. And we call people Pharisees who are legalists, who believe by following rules you're right with God. But back away from what we know by the full story and imagine the context. Jesus is talking to a group where Pharisees are there. Uh, religious people, people who are thinking high of themselves. That's why he's telling the story. People in that time, the Jewish people, generally liked the Pharisees. There were different groups in the Jewish leadership. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are two of those groups. The Sadducees were mostly despised by the common people. They were anti-supernaturalists. They were basically uh, people that were downers on the faith and practice of the Jews. The Pharisees, although they're a minority compared to some of the other groups and the leaders in the Sanhedrin, they were very popular with the people because they were usually middle-class business people or upper-middle-class business people um, who were successful. They weren't really preachers or pastors. They were more like elders would be in the church today. Lay elders would be, as some churches call them. They, they have careers and they're successful with them, but they're very religious too, and they have outward manifestations of keeping the law. And so they're really highly regarded. They were considered righteous people by people who would know the Pharisees. So don't think of the way we think of Pharisees, knowing what the whole of the Bible says. For them, when Jesus says the Pharisees, oh, people are listening, those are the, the highest of our society, the highest of our class. Now look what he says, what he does. Standing by himself, he prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. 
like other men. Now, first of all, you notice that his comparison or what makes him happy about himself is his comparison with other people. Not God's standard of justice, but the standard of other people's righteousness. So compared to other people, he's thanking God that he's not as bad. Really, that he's not like them at all. He says, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, when you read this, and we know it's an extreme contrast story, my thought when I hear a person, if he said this out loud, I would think, what a loser this guy is. I mean, who would ever say this out loud? Well, it doesn't say he said it out loud. A lot of times the stories will display it like he did. Remember, Jesus is able to say what's really on the heart of someone, which is super scary when you think about it. Because we would never say something like this out loud. But who can say they have never thought in judgment about someone else? Maybe even someone else in church right now that you looked across and saw, oh, that person, I know they... I remember visiting a a country church uh, a while back where everybody was pretty much related by different levels of relation, but they were related. They were farmers and they, it was a huge church. And I remember sitting uh, behind a couple older ladies and I saw them, I could see them visibly looking at people as they came in and whispering to each other as each person came in. And I heard some of it. It was like, did you hear what happened to so-and-so this week? Now all of it wasn't evil or bad, but they were so in tune with what everyone else did. And some of it was gossip about what they had heard so-and-so said. And, and I'm thinking to myself, they're saying it out loud. Imagine what people are thinking. If God could just right now flash on a screen everything you're thinking about the people sitting around you, the people at your workplace, the people at school, wherever it is that you go, admit that it's a challenge for us to hold back judgmental thoughts. So the man is just simply uh, on display for what he's really thinking as he stands before God. So he goes into the temple area to pray. He doesn't go with a group of people who are praying in some humble fashion. He stands before God in the temple. Another one was standing necessarily. However, he's in the temple where most people are going to be kneeling or bowing. He stands there before God with a certain amount of pride about him. And he's able to look up and he's able to basically present himself to God. That's what he's doing. And the words used to describe his prayer, his petition, his thought, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who must have been not too far away. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he comes before God in a way that displays his real thoughts. And he thinks to himself, you know, compared to other people, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not an extortioner. I don't steal money from people in my business transactions. I'm fair about what I do in my business and in my life. I'm faithful to my wife. Generally. Why do we laugh? Because we compare that to what? And that's kind of the point. See, if I told you I think that politician that gave the speech last week is a liar, you would all be, yeah, they're a liar. I wouldn't call myself a liar. But I've lied. Why am I not a liar and they're a liar? Because I'm comparing myself to them. And so compared to others, he wasn't an extortionist. He wasn't unjust. He wasn't an adulterer like in the worst way. This is where it kind of gets deep. 
who here is not an extortionist in some way? Who here is completely just? Who's not an adulterer in the way Jesus defines it? But the man is basing his judgment about himself in his status before God. He's judging it against the bar of man's righteousness. I mean, what a scary thing when you think about it, to go into the presence of God bearing man's righteousness. And you're just saying, I'm the best among the worst. That's what he's doing, essentially. That's his status. That's his place. So the person that everybody thinks is outwardly religious, faithful, and just, and upstanding, Jesus is saying to them, watch how this guy prays. I want to tell you the difference between, between him and someone else. He says that he fasts twice a week. It sounds very honorable. It's more than what the law said he had to do. He gives tithes of all that he gets. Now, the thing is, a fast could be something as simple as he skips lunch on Tuesday and dinner on Friday. I mean, it could be like that. So it doesn't say what he means by the fast. But he's proud of himself for it, and that's the problem. And then he says that I tithe of all that I get. Well, the tithe is really one of those gracious things God gives that every believer can give of, no matter how much or little you have. It's a percentage based on how much you have. It's a beautiful thing to allow everyone to contribute. But certainly people who are in middle class, upper middle class, and rich people should be giving a lot more than a tithe that promote God's work. Yet he's got the legal minimum there, and I just want to know, you know, I do it. Of everything I have, not just a few things, a lot of the Pharisees would only tithe off of certain things. The Pharisees thought their own goodness was so impressive that it could not fail to make them acceptable to God. And the bottom of your insert, there is a question I want you to think of even just now. What is your relationship to God? And then when you answer that question in your mind, what is your relationship? Do you have a relationship with God? On what basis do you have that relationship? The Pharisee here believes that he can stand before God like this because he has done good things enough to make himself acceptable to God. I know this is an extreme picture, but I think many people, even people who call themselves Christians, think the reason why they're all right, all right with God is that they've done enough good things or they've done more good things than bad things. So the good, they haven't done anything really, really bad. I think a lot of people think they're believers and have that position. They, they believe in some level of merit in what they do. They know they've done bad things, but overall, if you weigh it out, basically I'm pretty good or I'm better, I'm better than I am worse. And, And people cling to that. Even people who go to church or say they're Christians. That's how the Pharisees thought. There he is standing by himself before God with pride, able to speak to God in this way. Notice what's missing. There's no humility in his posture. There's no confession of sin at the beginning. Uh, There's no thanks to God for provisions. The thankfulness, he's thankful uh, to himself for not being like these others. It's like he's just letting God know that he's accomplished this. I thank you that I am not like other men. Uh, And notice what he says. Five times he says, I, I thank you that I'm not like others. I, 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 I sounds like a modern worship song. You know, I had opportunity to, to visit uh, hospitals a lot when I was uh, doing an internship in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with my mentor way back quite a few years ago. I've been married 23 years today. So it was 24 years ago that this happened. And I remember being in uh, hospital rooms of people we didn't know because we would go visit someone at the church that was in the hospital. He had an elderly congregation. And then because we made the trip out to the hospital, he said, let's just go walk through and meet other people. And 
And if you know this pastor, you'd realize, understand how this was the case. He was a, kind of a, a friendship evangelist guy. He would go be everybody's friends, and then eventually he would share the gospel. It was wonderful to watch him work. And we went into the room of people we never met because uh, as we walked by, a guy kind of motioned to us. We walked in, and the man was in the last probably week of his life. He had the late-stage lung cancer, and his lungs were constantly filling up. He had to be in uh, the hospital for this procedure, but they didn't think he had much time at all. Next to him was a man who was unconscious, was in congestive heart failure, and they thought he wasn't going to survive even a couple days. They were in terrible shape, both of them. We couldn't even talk to him. And as we were talking to the guy uh, in the bed closest who was able to talk to us, he said some things that were strange to me about, uh, he kept talking about the guy next to him and how bad off he was and how he's just really thankful he wasn't in his position. And I thought there's a similarity here about the way we, when we compare ourselves to other people's sin. Well, that person is worse than me. Okay, maybe. But he's got two days to live and you got four. That's the difference. I mean, really, that's what it's like when you start comparing with other people. And here's the thing. The person who did the worst thing, if we all want to compare ourselves to Hitler, we know what he did. But who knows? Maybe that's all Hitler did with bad was all the stuff that he did. Who knows what else is in our heads? Like, we don't really know. You don't really want to have flashed on the screen all your unrighteousness. It may be way worse than you think. And if what Jesus says is true, we believe it is. If you hate someone in your heart, you murder them. Boy, how many people have we done this to? If you have lust in your heart towards this person, you've committed adultery. In that light, in light of God's standard, how scary would it be to start comparing ourselves with each other even when everything starts flashing up on the screen about what we really have committed? The Pharisee represents this popular opinion. Acceptance with God is something a person contributes to and outward expressions of it give them some kind of security. But contrary to popular opinion, our acceptance by God is not based on this. It's based on God's grace. And I want to say this very carefully. His grace alone. The tax collector, verse 13, only says a little bit about him, but it tells everything. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now I want to pause because yes, we are empathetic towards the tax collector realizing his demeanor here and we appreciate this. But understand, if you're hearing the story, a tax collector is the worst of the worst in the society, especially in a Jewish society. Appreciate that everything the Pharisees said about the tax collector building up to him you know, an extortion, uh, someone who commits extortion, who's unjust, who's an adulterer, or a tax collector. It's like a culmination of the worst. It would be true about tax collectors. This guy was that bad. How do we know this? Well, the office itself is corrupt by nature. You have the Roman Empire broken up into different provinces. In those provinces, there are, are governors. The governors are responsible to the empire to pay tribute taxes. The emperor doesn't care how the governor gets it. Just give me the money. And that's part of the spoil of taking over new regions and new areas is they would get the tribute back. And the governor was successful based on how much they could raise. So depending on what governor it is, they would do harsh tactics. And any of them would. It wasn't like this was a pretty, a pretty process at all. They would hire tax collectors who could bid for regions that they would collect their money from, and then they would skim money off of what they collect, give tribute to the governor who gave it to the emperor, and then the tax collector could keep the rest. There was no clear tax code about what 
a person owed. So the tax collector was kind of a sneaky person who would live in a society with the people, but he would go to your business and kind of see how you're doing. And it wasn't much different than organized crime is depicted as going around and getting, taking piece of the, the money off of everybody and they had to pay tribute. And you never really knew if you were giving a fair amount or what amount it was. And they could tax this or tax that and the laws would change. And then they would be backed by uh, the Roman police force or the army if you didn't pay. So it was a, and then if you wanted to pay because you didn't have money and you didn't have money, then you could, you could bribe them in some way. And there were terrible, all sorts of immoral things happened to pay off the tax collectors. So they were really the worst of the worst, committing all sorts of sins in the name of the Roman Empire. It was even worse in Judea. If you lived, Judea was the Jews region occupied, oppressed by the Romans. So the Romans employed Jews to collect taxes off of their own countrymen. No one hated tax collectors more then the Jews hated their own tax collectors. Think of Zacchaeus in the story where he's a chief tax collector and hated. He didn't get up into a tree, didn't, shouldn't have gotten up into a tree because people would have seen him and beat him. That's the point. And so now you have this comparison. A tax collector comes to the temple, up into the temple, close enough to the Pharisee, but standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner couldn't lift up his eyes he knew the comparison was to be made with god's righteousness he acknowledges god god you be merciful to me a sinner yes he sinned against many people but he understood that first and foremost he was sinning against god because it was god's righteous standard he understood that he had violated god's righteous standard by the way he treated others god be merciful to me a sinner Now, this is important. He is coming up into the temple. He knows something about the temple and what it represents, or he wouldn't go there. In the temple, as I mentioned earlier, is the place where the sacrifices were made. More on that. Every year when the lamb was sacrificed, the blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat, which is a symbolizing of our need for the cleansing of our sins by the blood of the Messiah, of the righteous lamb. And so... There's a confession made by going there, you might say, that you believe in what is provided by way of the mercy of God. And the way that the temple describes the mercy of God is by sacrifice of Messiah. So in a, in a primitive way, he's saying, be merciful to me. He goes to God, represented by the temple, to the place where the mercy seat is and the blood is sprinkled. Be merciful to me. I know that my sin is so bad, there is nothing I can offer to you, so I throw myself upon your mercy. And the mercy represented there at the temple would have been by sacrifice by Messiah. It would be an acknowledgement that there's nothing I can bring. Empty hands, please save me. I know I'm a sinner. In verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, right with God. He had a relationship with God rather than the other, the one everybody thought should be right. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To be justified by God, we have to recognize our total, total bankruptcy and righteousness. God is completely holy and righteous. We are not even in the least Even if we sin one time, we are not righteous like him, so we cannot have fellowship with him. If we sin once, we're a sinner. It's not if you sin ten times, now you be called a sinner. No, you're a sinner if you sin once, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Paul's exact point in the book of Romans. There are none righteous, not one, Paul says. 
Well, we have quite a problem then if this is the case. And this is what the story really brings out. The depth of all of our problem, all of our problem. The tax collector comes to God on the basis of God's mercy, not on the basis of his deserving anything from God. He has zero to give to God. The Pharisee, on the other hand, he's exalting himself by what he has done and how he has been faithful. He's effectively saying, I've done good things, so you must accept me. The Pharisee made no acknowledgement of any sin on his part. And he even made a terrible insult against God. And this is what we do similarly. He was showing himself righteous by man's standard. So he's going into the holy temple of God, of the holy God. And he was telling God to judge him on the basis of human righteousness. What an insult to God. In religion that thinks this way is a total insult to God. Religious practice, rites and rituals, smells and bells. If we think that those make us something more to God or God accepts us because of those, we do the same thing. What is your relationship to God and on what basis? Well, we know for sure, as displayed by this story and expressed by all of Scripture, and this is the part that hit me, wasn't that terribly long ago. After, long after I'd become a Christian, understood the basics of the gospel. I used to think that when I became a believer, it was completely by the grace of God, he saved me, and I would acknowledge that. But then I thought, after I became a believer, as I lived my life, as I did good things, God would have favor upon me or bless me for doing good things. He'd maybe even, I would say it out loud, but love me more if I was more obedient. If I was disobedient, then God might punish me a bit or he might zap me a little bit or he might respond in some way that, that hurt me. Because it... Here's the reality. Before I became a Christian, before you became a Christian, you had zero merit, nothing whatsoever that made God accept you. Zero, bankrupt. After you became a believer, you still have no ability in yourself to ever produce a good work that would merit anything before God. Nothing. It's still that way. The only reason God accepts you is because he has made you aware of your bankruptcy. He has given you faith to lay hold of Christ. And it's by Christ's righteousness, legally credited to you, that he looks to you and he accepts you. So you're accepted by righteousness, but it's the righteousness of Jesus, not your own. You can never go to God with anything ever and say, love me more for this or accept me for this. None of it counts for anything. It's filthy rags to him. The only righteousness that he accepts is the righteousness of his dear son, who he sent on our behalf giving us faith to be united to him so that now we can have a relationship with God. It's the only way anyone can have a relationship with God is through the merit of Jesus. That's why we're saved not just by grace. We are saved by grace alone. This is what the Pharisee misses. And this is what many professing believers miss. They think that their religion is what saves them or their practice or their discipline or the fact that they're not as unholy as the people around them or the people in the world. But they're just as unholy if they're not in Christ. Such a concept. It's so important for us to understand it. When we understand grace at its deepest level like this, 
then it starts to have an impact. It, it transforms us. It, it changes who we are. It, cha- it actually gives us the ability to obey. We're no longer obeying because we are going to gain God's love. We're obeying as, an, as a response to the grace that's been shown to us. And we realize that even if we sin, God doesn't stop loving us in Christ. There's nothing you could do that make, would make God stop loving you. Because he loves you because he loves his son. And if you're united to his son, even when you sin, he still loves you. Even when you're about to go sin like you might be planning to do right now, he still loves you. Now, what does that do? That teaches my heart to fear, to respect, to appreciate what my Savior's done. And maybe I won't sin now. I hope I don't sin now. I don't want to sin now. But if I do, God still loves me in Christ. And if I don't, it's because he's done this work in me. He doesn't love me more because I obeyed. He already loves me as much as he possibly can. How much does God the Father love God the Son? Answer that question. That's how much he loves you. That's grace. And it's by grace alone that we are saved. This is why Paul, when he's writing to Titus, to show this isn't some fringe doctrine. This is the heart of the gospel. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the, the tax collector by God, was brought to the point of recognizing his sin. He saw where the standard was. He could not stand himself in light of this. And the only thing he could do is, the only thing any of us could do is throw ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ. And that's, what is, that's what's exemplary about the tax collector. That's what we all can relate with and should relate with. For nothing good have I whereby your grace to claim I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid most of it. I mean, who would sing that? Jesus paid it all. Imagine if you took a child to McDonald's, a a five-year-old child to McDonald's, and you sat there and ate, and the bill was 14 bucks, and you put 12 bucks down and said, son, pay the rest. What is a five-year-old going to do? What do you mean, daddy? I'm sorry, he can't pay. Can he wash some dishes? Jesus paid it all. I mean, that's what makes it grace. That's the gospel. He paid it all. He didn't pay most. I think a lot of people think that's what grace is. God does most of it. 90%, we do 10. That's not grace. I could almost open any book, any one in the middle of the 450s. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh is born can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can make, can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease thy weight of sin. What an insult when we think we have to help Christ work. Really? Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. Toplady said, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. 
Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Newton, who understood the tax collector, like we all should, he called it amazing grace. It's amazing because it's grace. How sweet the sound that saved a pretty bad guy like me. He saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. In that second verse, you should always sing all the words of amazing grace when you sing the hymn. Twas grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. May we, like the tax collector, say to our God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Let's pray. Lord, this is a a truly powerful contrast story, this parable. I pray, O Lord, that each of us would be brought to a clear understanding of your great holiness, our great sin, but most of all, our greater Savior. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together.